0: Welcome to the Thomas Industry Update Podcast, actionable information for industry leaders.
1: Hi, I'm Kathy Ma. I'm Sean Fitzgerald.
0: And I'm Tony Upoff. Hey, very excited to have our friend Andrew Blasey back on the Thomas Industry Update Podcast. Just as a bit of background, Andrew is director at Crowell and Mooring International, and Andrew guides the development and management of large-scale partnerships around the world. He specifically focuses on international government affairs, regulatory policy, and foreign policy matters. He joined our TIU podcast last May uh, to discuss the anticipated consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic on global trade. And before that, He walked our listeners through the impacts of the U.S.-China tariff uncertainties back in January 2020. Andrew, first off, welcome back. It's great to see you.
1: Great to see you, too, Tony. Thanks for having me back. And I hope you and your team have been doing well during this uh, unusual time.
0: Unusual indeed. And we have and hope the same for you and yours. The world has changed just a little bit since the last time we talked.
1: Yep, very, very much so. And I think it will continue to change. So brace
0: ourselves. So, so let's start with with kind of looking at at, at the trade agenda changes. Clearly, whenever t- whenever you change an administration, there's obviously a lot of um, e- either immediate or over time proposed changes to trade agenda. And We're already starting to see some things, you know, move around a little bit. How has the new administration's trade uh, trade agenda? Is it similar? Is it different? Why don't you talk through some of the things that you're seeing, at least at these early stages?
1: Sure, that would be my pleasure, Tony. I think there are several areas where the two administrations' approach to trade policy might be closer than you actually think, despite the politics, right? So as an obvious first example, both have taken a harder line on U.S.-China trade relations, as well as many supply chain dimensions that we see you know, uh, ongoing today, and that includes things like onshoring or nearshoring manufacturing to things like national security and technology considerations, right? So this alignment, I should say, is also widely shared across both political parties in the United States Congress. So it's not just a comparison, right, between the Trump administration and the Biden administration, but it's sort of a, a broader political uh, shift that's happening in the U.S. So. And I would also say this, Tony, the Biden and the Trump administrations have both taken strong interest in the importance of digital trade issues, right? And international alignment on issues like cross-border data flows. And I think we can reasonably say strong intellectual property protections and pro-innovation trade policies. So those seem to be by and large the areas of alignment. But you also asked about differences. So let's talk a little bit about those too. There are a number of them. I would think to start... The Biden administration's emphasis on the role of climate, right, worker and human rights considerations, global economic development, these things are going to play a much uh, more important role uh, in in sort of the trade agenda going forward. Uh, The Biden administration has reignited the prospect of multilateralism in trade as well, which the Trump administration did maintain under the renegotiation of NAFTA, what we call today the USMCA. But otherwise, Tony, as you know, moved very clearly away from in the context of, say, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and, and other international trade agreements. Now, I say this, but I, but I mean to reinforce that this doesn't mean the Biden administration is going to pursue comprehensive multilateral trade agreements anytime soon. right? That's the, the reason for that is more political in nature. There's a political dynamic at play more than just a philosophical one. Um, We also expect the Biden administration to take a soft approach on trade matters with traditional U.S. allies, Tony, especially in the national security realm. So if we're thinking the European Union, Canada, Japan, Korea, the reason for that is because the overarching policy goals of the Biden administration, um, they are more comprehensive. The goals have shifted away from simply sort of bilateral trade and economic considerations And I think President Biden would ideally like to avoid trade getting in the way of other chief goals, right, that the administration may have. Um, And then I'll make one more comment, Tony, in ways that perhaps the two administrations are a bit different. And that's that I think we can reasonably say the Biden administration is going to look more favorably at services trade as an important calculus in the equation in addition to goods trade, like the Trump, yeah, the Trump administration made that point clear. It's interested in goods trade, imports and exports.
0: Put yourself just for a minute into the shoes of one of our listeners who might be running a, you know, a, a U.S. manufacturing business as they're trying to interpret these changes. W- what advice would you give them to be successful in this you know, new emerging agenda, if you will? Are, th- are there some you know, two or three basic things that you would recommend?
1: Uh, a couple, a couple of things, Tony. Because you're right. How to navigate the environment becomes a key, a key question, right? So, a couple of things. First, I would extre- expect trade policy um, to develop more in a glacial sense, a more moderated uh, nature, compared to what we've seen in the last administration. It's, it's hard to, you know, me- you know how far back memories go. We always tend to focus on the present but you know we might remember more than 4 years ago trade policy didn't change all that much so it's doubtful that businesses should expect things to change this month to next month to next month and for uncertainty to perhaps be as high as what we might have been reaccustomed to over the past few years so with that said I know Tony we we'll want to talk uh, per your kind of outlay of our discussion today you wanted to talk a little bit about US China i do think industrial businesses should acknowledge that the changes we saw in the US-China trade dimensions during the last administration, those are, I think we should reasonably expect to stay. And in fact, I would, I would personally contend could become more prominent uh, over time. And so I think that that's a key thing. So I would also say, Tony, maybe in, in closing here, so if you're a North American business with an investment in, you source from or you sell to the China market, right? So including products or services, you have input components right that go into your products or your services. you should really expect the potential for future disruptions right Build that into your strategic plan. This shift is also likely to see Chinese enterprises engaging in greater international competition Tony and perhaps uh, th- th- than perhaps they have been before
0: really good points and you know, before you and I went on uh, on air here, we were talking a little bit about the, the the kind of confluence or the convergence of of you know a series of events, right? So you've got, you know, a, a post-pandemic world starting to shape up. You've got an acceleration of reshoring towards North America, particularly most acute in in the United States. You've got a huge adoption of advanced manufacturing technology, and then you start to see things like Buy American Act, the Barry Amendment. Let's see how the, the proposed infrastructure plan starts to play a role. I, I made the statement and you, you appeared to agree that this is a, a great time to be in North American manufacturing. Unpack that with me a little bit. Do, do you see those trends lining up to create somewhat of a unique market opportunity? or uh, And or do you see some counterbalancing dynamics based on some of these global issues that we're talking about?
1: Yeah, I, I think I think. Well, certainly um, given the economic environment that we see emerging from the pandemic as sort of one major macroeconomic force that's shaping global supply and demand versus trade. I mean, I think certainly it's a good time, you know, when we talk about manufacturing and we talk about technological advances, right? One thing we know that we've seen as a result of the, you know, sort of US-China trade tensions and how that's repostured thinking in both economies. Um, And then from the pandemic per se, the rapid focus on digitization, implementation of technological efficiencies, all of this in some way sets off a manufacturing race, I would say worldwide, right? How do we produce goods and how do we source and sell them more efficiently, uh, more competitively, uh, with higher quality, right? So all of those things come into play. So Tony, I would say absolutely, uh, but of course there's there's so many influencing factors that we're gonna have to think about.
0: Fair. You referenced uh, the Biden administration's talk about a worker centric trade policy. Uh, Tell us more about that. What 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 does that mean in practice, Andrew? What might we see? Very
1: simply, Tony, and I think this is important. Don't expect the U.S. government to go to bat for U.S. businesses anymore that are looking to protect or grow their overseas investments. Right. So let's just unpack that a little bit. So unless you can clearly demonstrate and quantify how those investments you are making connect directly to the employment of Americans, you know, one, one might need to start rethinking a little bit about, about how they think about engaging with the U.S. government on trade policy. Of course, demonstrating U.S. exports and the number of American workers that may be impacted by a trade policy action, either by the U.S. government or by a foreign government, increasingly is going to matter a great deal. We should also think about this for labor unions, right? Which is an important constituency of the Biden administration. This is also about achieving parity in worker conditions between trading partners, right? That's not new, Tony. This is something that's been around for a while, right? Like the wages and working conditions. So that also plays into a worker-centric trade policy. And I'll also say this, trade policies going forward that lead to downward pressure on wages in the United States will be viewed increasingly as a negative when it comes to U.S. trade policy. And you have to think about that in the context of inflation picking up here in the United States, right, due to fiscal and monetary stimulus. So anything that seeks to put downward pressure on wages while costs are increasing it is not is going to be a non-starter from a trade policy perspective.
0: And and so let's take it a step further. Should North American industrial businesses align with this approach? I mean, would you recommend people, you know, uh, align their strategies with this thinking in mind? I think,
1: you know, regardless of my opinion, Tony, I think it probably makes sense that they do so. Right. Particularly if you're a globally vested company. Right. You know, I know politics is difficult for all businesses to navigate increasingly these days. But many, but but I, I, let's think about it in this context. Many industrial businesses are choosing to localize their operations in markets around the world, right? Given the prospect of supply chain disruptions, divergent trade practices, but over time, we need to be careful about how this recipe will be viewed as something of success from a global strategy perspective, right? Because if you're not careful, it can lead to higher costs. And it can lead to increased reputational risks, right, for companies. If you're local, if you're a global company, but you localize your operations from one market to another, um, it creates disalignments and disassociations as a business. And, and that, and, and increasingly in a more transparent world, that becomes more difficult for a business to manage reputationally, especially as we start to see certain. Um, values enter into the trade discussion. And I'll talk a little bit more about values, Tony, later in our conversation, but companies should do a better job collecting and leveraging data as they seek to shape U.S. and global trade policy. That's gonna become so important, leveraging good data. Companies should also prioritize sustainable business practices and strategies over, over quick wins. And I know that quick wins are enticing, right, for businesses, But aligning your practices globally um, will 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 really help to sort of address increased scrutiny in our supply chains over time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Andrew, well said. You know, we were we were commenting the obligatory comment on how much the world has changed since we last talked. And if I go farther back, the very first time that we met and, and spoke, you know, what was on everybody's mind were the tariffs particularly the, the trade, uh, if I can use the expression, trade war battle uh, with China. You mentioned it earlier in the conversation. Talk a little bit more about <clears throat> how you see that playing out over the, over the next several years. You, know, you referenced earlier, you think that not a lot's going to change from the previous administration in terms of the stance, but you almost hinted like you thought there might be more coming.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, it's still, any, it's still anybody's guess, right? I, I think um, from a broader trade policy perspective, Tony, I think, um, we, insofar as the United States is concerned, I think that the Biden administration is very, very focused on achieving domestic policy priorities in the short term. You know, so if we're thinking about how the U.S. federal government's going to approach trade policy, domestic policy considerations will be the overriding influence. And to the extent that any issue can get in the way of those priorities, um, the administration will act or not act accordingly. The one big sort of elephant in the room here, uh, Tony, is around China, right, and, and China trade issues.
0: Interpret that for, for our audience a little bit. So, you know, if you're a North American industrial business owner who really relies on their relationship with Chinese suppliers you know, how, how how would you encourage them to start to think about navigating that going forward? Do you, you anticipate any any imminent changes?
1: Okay, so yeah, I, I can imagine Tony that a lot of of North American businesses and folks that you know are thinking very deeply about this and have been thinking about it for some for some time now. If we take a, if we go back up to ten thousand feet, it's in China's interest not to curtail investment and trade finance flows into their economy anytime soon, right? We just saw U.S. imports, I believe, right? Tony, principally from China hit a record high, right? After everything that that we've seen over the past few years. So it makes sense that this is happening because the Chinese government has a massive workforce that it needs to keep employed, right? So it's in China's interest not to curtail this. So in the short run, the risk that is the most prominent for North American industrial businesses when it comes to their relationship with Chinese suppliers still remains on the US side of this equation and whether or not the United States and or other governments around the world right, decide to impose additional restrictions or costs on businesses that decide to engage with Chinese suppliers or their partners but but as China and this this is not in the short term but you know as businesses think about sustainability As China continues to shift away from an export dominant economy, right? And towards an economy that is more consumer driven, technology and services driven economy, we should expect Chinese suppliers to increasingly shift from partners to competitors for North American industrial businesses, right? So as as folks are thinking about their partners, thinking about their supply chains, it's important to keep that balanced perspective and ultimately, as is all things, Tony. Right. In life, as in business, diversification, um, you know, can sometimes play a big role in how businesses think about sustainability.
0: Andrew, when we talked about some of these issues before, I, I think I posed the question to you is is Me- does Mexico become the new China based on some of the tariff challenges and things like that? And, you know, it, it's it's close to a year since we had that conversation. Um, you talk a little bit about you know, the, the, the kind of reemergence of what we thought of as NAFTA and how that might be viewed. Do you see some of these policies you know, fulfilling on that? Will we see a, a, a lift in, in, from Mexico and Canada in that and kind of a return to the, to the NAFTA point of view?
1: Yeah, all all signs point to yes, uh, Tony, uh, on that. I mean, the trade data, which I know you take a close look at, and and the sourcing data, all points to that being that being true. I will say this, however, because as your listeners know, my focus is on public policy, regulatory affairs, policy, and and foreign policy. What I will say is that that if we take the U.S. and put the U.S. aside for a moment, in the North American context. I am growing a little bit concerned about some of the, uh, some of the things I'm seeing in Canada and in Mexico for the, you know and, and that would be a part of a longer conversation, Tony, and, and happy to unpack that. but I think let, let me put it this way. I'm, I'm a little bit fearful that the Mexican government may be taking certain policy approaches in terms of their own economy and dealing with some of their own sort of populist po- uh, economic policies that might do a disadvantage to them in the short term. They have an election coming up in Mexico this summer. Perhaps we'll see some changes there uh, given the clear economic opportunity that exists from sort of a re-emergence of North American economic integration. Uh, But it's a little concerning because for American businesses that are trying to compete in a a level playing field, for global businesses that are looking for places to source, um, there are some regulatory issues in Mexico. And and maybe I'll, I'll just leave it at that. In Canada. Um, you know, the one thing I will say is I've been a little disappointed in, uh, from a can- Canadian perspective in hoping the government would embrace a more pro-innovation policy, right? And, and And Canada has always been known as a country that has a small consumer market, but has a highly educated and highly capable population. So a punch above weight philosophy for Canada was always something that made sense. But for whatever reason, I think we're seeing... The government struggle on that front a little bit. So my my so the but that's a long way of saying saying Tony. My my answer is yes, and I hope Canada and Mexico can keep up with where the U.S. is going.
0: Yeah, fantastic insights, Andrew, and, and really helpful to our audience because these are, you know. Chicken or the egg? You know, do these dynamics exist, and then trade policy attempts to shape them, or does trade policy come first and these dynamics play out? Uh, I, I think probably a combination of both. But fantastic insights. Hey, take us into the future. What 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 are things we should be paying attention to now in trade policy? I think you just mentioned a couple that are really interesting from a from an inter, let me call it international point of view that you think will. Will be front and center, say two to five years from now.
1: So, Tony, I know one of the reasons you, you love to have us chat is at the risk of me sounding a bit too controversial, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there for the for the sake of argument. And I'm going to I'm going to you know extend a, a thought to your listeners, which is that I'm going to say the glo- the era of global free trade in goods and services is coming to an end. The era of global free trade is coming to an end, and I don't even think that it's not the reemergence of global fair trade that will take its place. I think, and I, I sort of coining this, I think that we're getting ready for a global values trade system that is about to emerge. So whether we're talking about worker and human rights considerations, the environmental impact, uh, good governance, right? We talk about corruption on the last program, Tony. The implication of such practices on the manufacturing of goods or in the services realm, right, which is especially important. Let's think about things like data, privacy, secondary uses of data, the role of of new technologies. All of these will continue to grow significantly in influencing nation state decision-making on trade. So in that context, how could we be, you know, sort of used to the way things were, right, instead of a new paradigm in the way we think about trade? We should also not expect nation states to deploy the same values, Tony, through their trade practices. So I'm of the view, you've heard some people use the term deglobalization. I think, I think that's wrong. That rather instead, fragmented globalization is more likely the way we're going. And, and a princip- principally in the way that's bifurcated between the United States and China, right, as the main centers of gravity in this sort of global values trade sort of view. So globally vested businesses, right, or or, or folks that are tied to international supply chains, they need to be prepared for multiple new rules of the road, right? Sometimes these rules of the road are going to be conflicting. How to treat data, what constitutes appropriately sourced goods or services. This is sort of the future that we're stepping into.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Thomas Industry Update podcast. To hear the rest of my conversation with Andrew Blazy, check out the extended video cut now available on YouTube and linked in the show notes of today's podcast.